BirdNote presents. Hey there, I'm Ari Daniel, and this is Threatened, a new show from BirdNote about answering the call to protect the birds and places we love. The Pacific Flyway is a migratory route for at least a billion birds. For many, like the Western Sandpiper, it's an epic journey twice a year. Each spring, they fly from wintering grounds in South America all the way to the Arctic where they breed in the summer. They then fly south again in the fall. Scientists studying one stop along this route, where fresh water meets the salty Pacific Ocean, are finding what locals and birders have long known. The Fraser Estuary is an important pit stop along that journey. Producer Molly Siegel takes us out onto the mudflats. At Brunswick Point, 18 miles south of Vancouver, British Columbia, on a late summer evening, you might find Amy Hustis stopping to marvel at the many types of birds that travel through this coastal spot. The western sandpiper is a small shorebird that's kind of gray and brown on top and white on the bottom. And it travels in very large numbers. It's so mysterious the way that they move in their big cloud. They move like a school of fish. They move in synchronized form with white bellies and catching the light. And it appears and disappears in front of your eyes if it does that. And if it's happening at sunset, the white bellies of the birds will turn the color of the sunset, so they might turn completely orange and flash brilliant colors. So the way that you feel when you see fireworks or something like that or sparks going off, it's like it's happening, but it's birds making it happen. Amy is an artist. I walk every day at Brunswick Point. Every day for the past four years, Amy's visited this spot. She walks the trail, she writes, she draws, and she soaks up her surroundings. It's part of a tidal mudflat. The mudflats are very silvery and pretty. Right now they're extra pretty in the sunset because the sunset colors are reflecting on the water rivulets that run along them. And they are tidal. So right now the tide is going out and part of the mudflats are exposed and part are underwater. The parts that are exposed are covered in birds. Little shorebirds and herons are out there. There are just so many birds here. So many kinds of birds come through this one little spot. Depending on when you're here, you might see great blue herons, American widgeons, trumpeter swans, or snow geese. Other shorebirds like dunlin or black-bellied plovers. This place is where British Columbia's longest river, the Fraser, meets the Pacific Ocean. The Fraser River estuary is that in-between spot where the fresh river water meets the ocean. And it's considered one of Canada's important bird areas. 
in Canada, these areas aren't necessarily protected, but they are internationally recognized as being crucial bird habitat. The western sandpiper is one of those birds that stops through here. They weigh only about an ounce and a half, or as people around here like to say, the same weight as a granola bar. Western sandpipers migrate back and forth between the Arctic, where they breed, and as far south as Panama for the winters. On their way north, hundreds of thousands of them come through this area. In some years, as many as 60% of the world's western sandpipers stop here, in this important bird area at the Fraser River estuary. And those shifting, glimmering clouds of birds, called murmurations, captivate many people. It's a very individual pursuit being out on the mudflats. It's not a lot of people want to go out there and get covered in mud up to their navel, basically. The first time Jason Puttyfoot came to Roberts Bank was about 15 years ago. My partner took me out there on a date. It was during the birds' spring migration north. When they got here, there wasn't a single western sandpiper. But 10 minutes later? Thousands of these sandpipers came around the point and were flying right towards us. And they landed right there. And at that moment, he says, this is something I want to do again. This is something I want to see again, experience again. And he has. Every year, he goes out and he spends hours at a time at Robert's Bank to record sounds and video and to take photos. Robert's Bank is a hot spot for birds. And those giant clouds of migrating sandpipers draw in bird watchers, convert non-birders into birders, and captivate scientists like Robert Elner. Just drawn to them initially by their numbers, their beauty in terms of their flight, and the amazing fact that they're migrating so far and they're such tiny birds. Robert is an emeritus scientist for Environment and Climate Change Canada. He's not an ornithologist, but he ended up discovering something that may be the crux of the survival of these birds. To get there, though, we have to start with crabs. Robert researched various crab species that also use intertidal mudflats. He saw something crab-like in how these shorebirds, including western sandpipers, were also using those mudflats. At that time, Robert says people thought we knew everything there was to know about what western sandpipers eat. It basically ascribed what they were feeding to invertebrates uh, without any regards whether or not invertebrates were there. But once he started digging into things, he realized that the birds weren't eating invertebrates all the time. Initially starting to look at their diet and being told by my colleagues I was wasting my time because their diet was so well known. But persevering and look, noticing that there wasn't a lot of food from where these birds were apparently feeding and then looking in their stomachs and seeing virtually nothing there either. At certain times of year, they had nearly empty stomachs what seemed to just be sediment. And the long migration just didn't seem plausible. But he and a colleague noticed something unique about Western sandpipers. They have hairy tongues. And then slowly that sort of putting that jigsaw together that the hairy tongue represented something they were eating on the mudflats. If you carefully look at a mudflat, you notice a gleam to it. And, you know, I can sense the color to it what he describes as a green-blue tinge. You can feel it if you're very careful. You put your finger right on the surface. It feels like a little bit mucusy when you pull it away. You can actually taste it. It has a slightly sort of seafish-type sort of taste to it. This mucusy coating on the mud is called biofilm. And take a close look at that biofilm. Okay, not with the human eye, 
because I'm talking really, really small. And it's full of living things, diatoms, which are single-celled algae. In other words, untold numbers of microscopic plant-like organisms. Robert saw the sandpipers eating this stuff, and it clicked. This is what the hairy tongues were for, picking those tiny diatoms out of the muck. But there was something else going on. The biofilm at that time, when the birds were there, was being subject to a shock, a salinity shock. That's our belief. In the spring, there's a gradual increase of fresh water flowing into the estuary from the Fraser River. And when that fresh water meets the salt water, it creates the salinity shock. That salinity shock changed the diatoms from being ordinary plants, photosynthesizing, producing sugars, into basically shutting down and producing high quantities of lipids in a very unique fashion. This is important. The birds were eating diatoms, those tiny algae. But instead of being rich in sugars, Robert found they were instead full of fatty acids. Sidebar, in humans, one of the most well-known fatty acids is omega-3. It turns out Western sandpipers were seeking out other nutrient-rich fatty acids, specific kinds of them and at specific times of year. The Western sandpipers were eating the fatty acid-rich diatoms when they stopped over on their way north to breed. About half of the energy they get at the stopover is from the biofilm. They use their hairy tongues to suck up the biofilm on the mud, which explains the sediment in their stomachs. That salinity shock was literally changing what those tiny diatoms were producing. As for what the Western sandpipers need these fatty acids for, you have to get out on the mud flat to answer that question. Like marine biologist Pat Baird, who's based at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia. I have no idea why I'm always the one with my boots getting sucked into the mud. Pat studies seabirds as well as shorebirds and what they eat. So despite her better judgment, she spent a lot of time wrestling the mud in the Fraser. I'm always having to get pulled up and like my feet out of the mud, which have like started to sink. A lot of birds migrate, but the western sandpiper has to go really far to mate. From as far south as Panama, all the way north to the Arctic. Imagine if you were about to run a marathon, you might eat a lot to prepare for that. Carbs, protein bars. Western sandpipers have specific requirements to make that journey. <laughs> well, it's like the British uh, Navy. When they went on those long voyages, their teeth fell out. They got gum disease. British sailors struggling with scurvy until they realized it was all due to a lack of vitamin C. Then they found out that vitamin C helped them with that. And so they had enough things to eat, but they didn't have this one particular nutrient that was vital to their health. For sailors, it was a vitamin C deficiency, and citrus was a cure. For Western sandpipers flying north to mate, a lot of the stuff they need to survive and to breed is hidden in the muck of the biofilm. She gives me a list of what those fatty acids help with, like cognition. They're trying to remember their root north. That helps with that. It helps with vision. And forming membranes, which they'll need up north when laying their eggs. It helps with immunity. So like if you're migrating a long distance, if you get sick, if you get a virus or something, that impedes whatever you're doing. And so uh, it's best not to get sick on the way north if you want to breathe. The more I learn, the, the more incredulous I get. Diatoms are critical. They're the crux of the entire food web. 
That process that shocks the diatoms into producing fatty acids, when the fresh water sloshes into the salt water, if it gets disrupted, the ripple effects could be big. Because when you're talking about an estuary, you're really talking about more than just the estuary, but also everything it touches. The Salish Sea on North America's west coast, where the Fraser Estuary meets the Pacific Ocean, and back upstream. The reverberations could extend out to organisms that make their home in these waterways, like salmon. So I'm here at the side of the Fraser. It is a beautiful morning on the river. Misty McDuffie is a biologist with the Raincoast Conservation Foundation. She's the director of their wild salmon program. Follow the Fraser upstream and you'll eventually meet the Harrison River which is where Misty's out on a boat looking for Chinook salmon. Now this is their um, homeward migration as adults, big four-year-old, sometimes five-year-old and six-year-old Chinook salmon that are returning to their spawning grounds. The Fraser River estuary is vital for salmon. The Chinook salmon Misty's looking for today and other species. And all five species of salmon uh, rear and migrate through this estuary. Chum, coho, chinook, pink, and sockeye. And the estuary is a place where they acclimatize to the presence of salt water, which is a big physiological change for the fish to go through. The Fraser River estuary is that key transitional spot for these salmon, where they go from freshwater to saltwater. And the important bird area encompasses this estuary and the mudflats. But it also extends over nearby areas containing farms, municipalities, and a busy port where container ships arrive and depart. The port at Roberts Bank is in the middle of those mudflats where the western sandpipers congregate. The Vancouver Fraser Port Authority proposed an expansion to convert 177 hectares of mudflat and marshlands into more port. The proposed Roberts Bank Terminal 2 would handle larger containers and more of them. The proposal has many people worried that it'll be too much for some of the birds in this area, like western sandpipers. But the Roberts Bank Terminal 2 proposal would make things difficult for other species too, like little salmon that have just hatched. And if you're a tiny little juvenile salmon and you are wanting to migrate south, and it also is the route to the Pacific Ocean, you've got to get around, physically get around this project. And already the existing terminal is likely a barrier to that migration. What the proposed project would do is it would extend and expand the causeway and the footprint right out into Georgia Strait. A port expansion would make that obstacle even larger. And those small salmon? They would have to move out into deeper and saltier water. And if you're a tiny little salmon, deeper, saltier water further away from shore is the last place you want to be. The last place you want to be. Because the open water means you're more vulnerable to things that want to eat you. An estuary, with its mix of fresh and salt water, is a good place to adjust to the salt water, and it also has the food they need. The majority of the Fraser River's 19 populations of Chinook salmon have been identified as at risk or worse. But Misty says if the port expansion moves ahead, things could get even tougher for these fish. 
countless development projects have already changed British Columbia's coast. Yeah, and I think RBT2 is, is just one of many, one of thousands probably, one of thousands of impacts that have occurred over a, a much longer period of time. It and numerous other projects have contributed to where we're at today. This is Murray Ned. And uh, I've lived in Seamass First Nation the majority of my life. He's the executive director of the Lower Fraser Fisheries Alliance, a group that gives voice to some of the First Nations communities in the Lower Fraser. There's two things that have been managed in my lifetime, and one is the fish, and the other one is Indians or First Nations or Indigenous people. And the Government of Canada, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, has the full responsibility and perhaps the accountability for the management of fish. That means they decide which populations of which species, like salmon, can be fished, how many and when. I have to be very clear that First Nations have, have been displaced from management and control for over 150 years. Since he started fishing in the early 80s, Murray's seen big changes in the number of fish out there. And with that, decreases in the amount of fish he can catch and the number of days that he can fish. Pacific salmon stocks have declined for numerous reasons, including destruction of habitat, overfishing, and climate change. Some fisheries don't open at all some seasons. These changes are already having an impact on future generations having access to fish like salmon. If you don't have the time on the river to be able to practice and share that, uh, then you, you start to lose that opportunity to be able to share. And then they lose out on a form of lifestyle and a way to at least sustain and provide some food for the food security for the year. Salmon have come up as part of the conversation surrounding the proposal for Roberts Bank Terminal 2. As part of the process, the Port Authority submitted its proposal for impact assessment. And in March of 2020, the review panel came out with its findings on that plan. It's all very bureaucratic. The report is literally hundreds of pages and was submitted to the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada. In it, the panel raises concerns, including adverse effects on some First Nations in British Columbia. The review panel specifically mentions cultural heritage as well as loss of land use and resources. A few of the First Nations cited by the review panel have delegates with Murray's group, the Lower Fraser Fisheries Alliance, Suwasan, Musqueam, and Tisleil-Waututh First Nations. Over 80% of our traditional diet came from the ocean. And that, of course, included the salmon. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm only one generation removed from a, a traditional diet. Um, Reuben George from Tisleil-Waututh Nation and a manager of Sacred Trust, which is an initiative to stop the Trans Mountain Pipeline Ruben left his career in family therapy to work on environmental issues full-time. And, and think of the beautiful area that we live in, then just think of the destruction that this will cause. Think of, think of the, these things will not exist. And, and, you know, so much of the world's species have already died. In 2019, he spoke out in solidarity with the Lummi Nation over their concerns the proposed port expansion would reverberate beyond the Canada-U.S. border. My traditional name is Tomas, and I am a member of the Lummi Nation. Ellie Kinley lives on the Lummi Reservation just north of Bellingham in Washington State. Her treaty rights, both in Canada and the United States, allow her to fish a quota of salmon from the Fraser. She fishes commercially as well as for her own personal consumption. But traffic in the Salish Sea already has an impact on her. When we're out fishing all along the San Juan Island, 
these ships pass through going from the south to the north. And two years ago, we were fishing off the top of um, San Juan Island. A container ship went through. It sent a wave that was probably eight feet high, at least. And it was, it was, it was frightening. Oh, fuck. God damn, they should have laws against them guys going that fast, Rick. This is from a video her brother recorded. In it, you can see a wave crash into her boat. So it literally endangered our fishermen. And I, I, I don't even know what to think about an even larger ship coming into the Salish Sea, what that would do. What we're seeing is that vessels are getting larger. We're not getting more of them. Duncan Wilson is the Vice President of Environment, Community, and Government Affairs for the Vancouver Port Authority, which is leading the proposed expansion. So the number of container vessels calling the port over the last decade has been relatively flat, even though the cargo volumes have really gone up. And that's a trend that we expect to continue. We're running low on container capacity right now. And that's very important for for us, not just because uh, most people think about containers as import goods, but in Canada, in Vancouver in particular, we export a tremendous amount in container. So um, we need those. We need the containers coming in to have the empties to fill up with Canadian exports. Because the Lummi Nation is in the U.S., Ellie says the Vancouver Port Authority did not consult with them about the proposed Terminal Two expansion. Just because there's an invisible border there doesn't mean the harm is going to stop at the border. <laughs> she lives just 32 miles south from where the Fraser River meets the Salish Sea. For Ellie, there's already too much traffic from ferries and shipping. The salmon she fishes from the Fraser are already compromised. So to see another factor that could further complicate things for salmon... Can I use the word ludicrous? <laughs> The Fraser River stocks are in trouble as it is. How do they even think it's possible to put that much more in those in the pathway of those fish and feel like it won't have an impact on those salmon? And salmon are only just one part of the ecosystem. You harm the salmon, you know, Quahomachton, the orca are, are right behind that. It's, it's just incredible that they even think they can do that. For biologist Misty McDuffie, these connections are crucial to understanding the importance of the Fraser River estuary habitat. You could focus just on single species, but really it's an entire food web where estuaries are, are these critical nurseries and feeding grounds in this whole food web of species that interact and rely on each other and salmon and killer whales and western sandpipers are really just sentinels for how the entire food web is doing. When I asked about the, the preliminary effects and concerns on say the killer whale population here, they said they would mitigate to the best of their ability. This is George Harvey. He's the mayor of the city of Delta, where the Roberts Bank Terminal is located. And every time, even during the panel discussions, when we asked questions about threats to various species, et cetera, or environmental concerns, they kept saying they would mitigate to the best of their ability. That doesn't give me much confidence at all. You need economic engines like the port for Canada. But in this case, 
the federal scientists could not support the project. Scientists with Environment and Climate Change Canada who submitted their findings to the Federal Review Panel. And their findings included some concerns about the environmental impacts. And I believe very strongly that as a politician, as a mayor, we need to support our federal scientists. And until such time as the federal scientists and the consultants for their Vancouver Fraser River Port come together and have agreement, I cannot support this project. This is what thousands of Western sandpipers sound like. A mix of the birds as they feed and the port in the background. For Western sandpipers, this fueling station is crucial, says biologist Pat Baird. They're kind of like a, a, like a little stepping stones north to their breeding grounds. And if one of those stepping stones is not there, they just can't get there. She equates it to taking a long road trip where you run out of gas stations. Well, you couldn't go any farther. That would be it. Migration could theoretically stop because there are really no alternatives for these birds. The Terminal 2 expansion at Roberts Bank could effectively take away a really important gas station from the Western Sandpipers. So why wouldn't they just stop somewhere else to breed? It's just that these birds are, are programmed to go north and they're programmed to feed on these diatoms in order to be able to make that nonstop jump. Without it, scientists like Pat worry the Western Sandpipers simply wouldn't make it. The Port of Vancouver has its own research on the mudflats and biofilm. Here's Duncan Wilson again. There will be no effect on the amount of biofilm as a result of the project. Um, and even if there were small changes in the footprint, it, it's not going to, they'll not be significant enough to, to have an impact there. The question is, it's more about fatty acid content. But both Pat Baird and Robert Elner's research shows this habitat needs the flow of cold water from the spring runoff into the estuary, meeting the salty tidal waters. It isn't just fatty acids in general. It's particular fatty acids at particular times of year. The proposed port expansion would change this flow of water. It's clear to Pat Baird just how important it is to keep the estuary intact for the western sandpipers. I think if you walk there at most seasons, all you see is a bunch of mud and you think, oh, that's an ugly place, you know, why, why don't they just put a giant port here? But I think if you can walk there uh, and see when the birds are actually using it, I think you'll get a better understanding. The more people that can go out there and walk along the dike and just look at, at the whole place in the springtime in April when the birds come through, I think they'll get a better appreciation of how important it is. It's important not just for the western sandpipers and the many other birds, but for people who've gotten to know this place, like artist Amy Hustis. Visiting a place like Brunswick Point often is a way to engage with the bigger story of a, you know, a mass extinction event. And we know very well that this is happening and we're seeing species disappear at an alarming rate and the world we love in terms of wildlife is is disappearing in front of us. And birders like Jason Puttyfoot. That connection that 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 sound gives you to these animals, I mean they're they're saying something. It's a beautiful to to hear them and experience them. And when they take off you can actually feel them too. You can actually feel 
the wind coming off their wings and hitting you as a large flock takes off directly beside you. When western sandpipers take off and continue their journey south for the winter or north each spring to mate, they travel the Pacific Flyway. They don't know the borders we create or the decisions we make about the spaces they use. But our decisions do have an impact on them. Not just on western sandpipers, but on so many other birds. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Threatened. If you want to learn more about what you can do to help shorebirds or where the port expansion currently stands, visit birdnote.org and check out our show notes. Next week on Threatened, we head to the boreal forest, a vast swath of land that billions of birds call home. And it is one of the most intact forest landscapes left on Earth, about 80% intact, virtually no sort of footprint of industrial development. Because of that, it's been able to support an incredible number of birds and diversity of birds. And hear about the incredible journey to protect it. Our people, they decided that uh, we needed to protect the heart of our homeland, the huge, huge homeland. The most important lesson is that if you take care of the land, the land will take care of you. Subscribe now so you don't miss it. You could also give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find the show. And stay in touch with us on social media by following BirdNote on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. BirdNote is an independent, nonprofit public media organization. If you like what you hear, support our programming. Visit our website, birdnote.org, and click the donate button. This episode was produced by Molly Siegel and me, Ari Daniel, with support from the BirdNote team. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.